Chapter 5 of Clouds Cover the Campus by Daniel A. Lord S.J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter 5 Your head, too, will feel a little like an overworked punching bag if within so small a circumference of time you've been knocked out twice. It's marvelous what a head can stand if it has enough concrete and ivory in its composition. I beat you to that one. So when I emerged from my lights out, I crawled into bed, feeling very bad and very good, for I may as well tell you right away, having deliberately misled you a minute ago, that's the only time I misled you, and I shan't do it again, since I have a sensitive conscience, that my assailant didn't get the real eyepiece. Oh, the thief thought it was the real thing, and not having the rest of the bomb sight, unless old Charlie was triple-crossing me, he'd not learn the truth right away so I'd have a little peace. If, however, Charlie was crossing me up, and the thief already knew that the eyepiece was a phony. After a fitful sleep, I shook all that reasoning from my aching head, and slowly pulled myself out of bed. A crack on the head has a way of going right down to the tips of your toes. It hurt me even to walk. Anyhow, whoever was interested in the bomb site would expect me to look unhappy, and my head was a practical help in that assignment. My delicate conscience, to which I recently referred, or my guardian angel, or sheer prudence, kept nudging me to make a clean breast of the whole thing to the FBI men. But Paris Green and Shorty didn't look like a particularly tender pair of father confessors. If I told them I'd stolen the eyepiece, they'd anchor me right in the laboratory on the night of the murder, and if I mentioned that bright object I'd picked up and the shift in the letters, which reminded me, and the excitement of finding my room so thoroughly searched, I'd forgotten to look in my collar box and see whether the bright object was there. I staggered across the room and pulled out the box. The clue was gone. I stumbled over to my bed, sat down, and pulled out from under the pillow the pajamas into which I had not bothered to change after last night's adventure. There in the pocket, where I had safely placed it and covered it with a handkerchief, lay the duplicate bright object. It was nothing very definite, nothing very conclusive, but if I could only spot. I began to make myself useful. Just as a matter of discipline and because physical work will clear even a much battered around head, I washed all the dishes, brewed myself a batch of fresh coffee, read the copy of the Daily Rock Ledger that had been slipped under my door, and got another headache. How that Weiss chap had played up the dust on the flying field, the fury of his editorial, the acid invective of his charges against well, no one in particular but the whole Department of Aviation, the Army, the Faculty, the University, anyone who ever put wings around a man's shoulders. I wondered that he hadn't taken a crack at the Wright brothers and Charles Lindbergh, and I was tempted to read the diatribes again just to make sure. But the print swam before my eyes, so I gulped hot coffee and felt like a mouse sitting in a one-way hole and looking out into the expectant eyes of a tomcat or a weasel. In other words, I was very, very happy in reverse English. It was a day without events. A gracious providence probably argued, reasonably enough, that I had about all any one man should be asked to take. Even when a mess is a chap's own fault, the gracious powers do occasionally call things to a halt. So no one crashed in the flying field that day, though Morin, apparently determined that morale should not belong to Crumple, sent his students aloft in steady streams. The local police seemed to infest the place like hungry mosquitoes who'd heard of some nice thick ankles. But you can brush off mosquitoes, 
and I dodged the police with expert skill. On my way to the lab I saw Paris Green. He swerved in my direction, and I gritted my teeth. If he poked questions into my throbbing head, my fair locks would be blown off in a single loud explosion. Anyhow, I didn't want his cold, microscopic eyes focused on my battered countenance. He'd not commented on the wallop on my forehead. Could he possibly fail to notice now that my head was about five sizes larger than the normal? Just as I had steeled myself to say, I don't know from nothing, and if I did, wouldn't I be a chump to solve your mystery stories for you? He veered away from me. I felt positively thwarted. Darned if I ain't an insult when an FBI man doesn't think you worth a little sharpshooting. Julia May and I had lunch together, bless her darling heart. We talked a little of dear old short circuit, and I tried to get her to unburden her soul about Mitzi and Elwell. Darling, I asked, isn't there anything suspicious, however little, that you've noticed about him? I don't like him. I think he's crooked as a swan's neck, and if I could rid Mitzi of him, or rid you of him. She shook her head slowly. Whether it was that she really knew nothing, or that she felt a loyalty to Mitzi, I couldn't tell. But, I persisted, that cock-and-bull story. What? she asked, evidently bent on deflecting me. Do people visualize when someone says cock-and-bull story? I'm in science, not philology, I retorted. Besides, don't try to steer me off. Why did Mitzi tell us that perfectly silly story about herself and Elwell going someplace to dance? What were they really up to? Why is Elwell dragging her around the countryside? And then I shut up quickly, not wishing to hurt her by the story of our having seen them out riding. But Julia May was regarding me with those calm, sure eyes of hers. That wasn't a yarn, dear, she said. Not a yarn, I almost shouted. No, they were dancing, I'm sure of it. I'm sorry, dear, but I think they are in love. I think they've been in love for a long time, though I am sure she was faithful to Uncle. She was grateful, a little, and she honored his reputation. Now she's free, with all the conventions, the demands of polite society, the etiquette of the campus shout out that they mustn't be together too much. She's young, but convention forbids her to dance. She loves him, but they can't drive in the country together, so they do what they want to do. No wonder Mitzi was embarrassed and flustered when Dick jolted the truth from her. They had been dancing, and they were both ashamed. I, too, was jolted. It seemed too simple, far too simple to be a piece in this stained jigsaw puzzle. Yet here was a woman who should know another woman, and she was utterly and persuasively convincing. We finished our lunch in silence. Even silence with Julia May sharing it had come to be a lovely thing. I dropped by the jail for a glimpse of Nils, but the self-important jailer, who never before had a suspected murderer in his clutches, waved me away. So I wrote Nils a bit of encouragement on a sheet of lab paper, and plotted back to my laboratory. After all, I was supposed to be working on a graduate degree, and I doubted whether examiners would be impressed if instead of answering, I replied to their questions with, I missed that part of the sentence. You see, I had an awful hangover as a result of a murder and two biffs on the conch. Intent on making up for lost time, I worked well into the darkness. When I had filled several sheets with notes and figures, I began to get bleary-eyed, so I left the lab and slammed the door. A hunch made me walk downstairs and call Dick. He was home all right, and Harry was with him. I'm at the lab, said I, and my head's full of steel filings and logarithms. 
How about picking up Julia May, and then me, and taking us for an airing? Even over the phone he was his own agreeable self. So I hung up, and then, because I felt the need for familiar surroundings, went upstairs again and headed for my lab. I had switched off the light before, and the hall was dark. I noted particularly that no light seeped out from under Charlie's door. Yet maybe because mystery and melodrama were becoming part of my nature, I walked along the corridor as quietly as if I were shod in August clouds and velvet. Just outside Charlie's darkened room, I stopped. Faintly, oh, very faintly, I heard that unmistakable sound of a radio delivering what my experienced ear told me were short waves. The speaker's voice was guttural. Then across it cut another voice speaking in Spanish. I heard the name Central University once more, and a number, one. Then the name of Ducal College, and the number two. There was no doubting it. Charlie was listening in on a receiving set like mine, and old short circuits, and that unknown voice which I had come to know so well. If one can be said to know the unknown, and to feel close at hand, the out of reach, with giving the grisly report of the day's killings, no mention of Rockledge, but the day here had been untouched by death. The reporter was going down the list. Then the final period that brought the report to a full stop. Cut. A click and silence. My first impulse was to crash that door and demand an explanation from old Charlie. But there were too many questions I would have had to ask. How he happened to have a set like mine in old short circuits, when I thought that there were only two in existence. Why he'd been listening, whether he knew the speakers, whether he was in any way connected with that ghastly nightly report, whether he'd been with Eisenberg on that night that the professor had been rocketed home to God. My second impulse, the saner one, led me quietly back down the hall. As I reached the shadow in the turn toward the stairs, I heard a door open. Charlie's, no doubt. But I heard no other sound for a long, long minute. Then I heard a door close. I tiptoed down the stairs and out of the building. Looking up, I saw a light in Charlie's room, yellow against the drawn curtain. I could hear his radio softly sending forth, the blue Danube, played in some all-night broadcasting station. Then Dick's car cut up behind me with the swoop of a gull over deep water. I climbed into the back seat with Julia May, and the four of us whisked noiselessly, and with a perfection of mechanical speed, out into the calm, silent countryside. Have you ever noticed how a motor car seems sometimes to guide itself? If you have once traveled over a certain road to pleasure or adventure, the next time you come anywhere near that road, the car seems almost under its own compulsion to turn that way. Hitherto we'd pay little attention to that road toward the glass factory ghost town. Yet tonight, as we wheeled away in Dick's speed demon, we found ourselves heading down that same road, now dark and plush with the shadows of night. Once we had turned from the main highway into the not-so-smooth surfaced road, Dick trimmed his speed. In fact, since we were intent on our thoughts and anxious to share them, I within limitations, with one another, we found the quieter pace more to our liking. Conversation started, as it will among friends, out of nowhere, loped along in jerks, through spurts, over silences, but it carried us over the rocky road of mystery and sudden death, and the touch of men who threatened all of us because they so obviously hated the land we lived in. Snap it off, said Harry from the front seat. Dick turned the ignition key, and the car coasted to a stop under the thick shade of a roadside clump of trees. The quiet of the country, marked by tiny, reassuring noises, was restful. We all sat silent, our thoughts running in shining parallel rails 
that did not need to meet. Then suddenly there was the unmistakable phosphorescent glare that announces the coming of a powerful car with powerful lights. I felt rather than saw Dick snap off his parking lights, and I hoped that we were far enough off the road not to be sideswiped by the car that we now could hear thundering down the road. If lights blinded us, whether or not the driver saw us, we had no way of knowing. He made no effort to dim his lights, but kept them high, paralyzing any chance we might have had to see either the clear outlines of the car or any of the occupants, if there were any besides the driver. A sucking vacuum about us as the car scooped the air and well by, then quiet again. Finally Dick voiced what we were all thinking. Darn funny for a man to be taking this road at such a pace. Or is this road haunted by cars we all ought to be interested in? A sudden, irresistible hunch seized me, coupled with that love for mystifying one's friends, that seizes, at times, on all of us. Get going, Dick, I said, trying to keep excitement out of my voice, and turn and stop when I tell you. Okay, Skipper, Dick replied, and we rolled out onto the road again, moving slowly through the intersecting shadows. After a few minutes of thoughtful silence, we saw ahead of us the strong, squat outlines of the glass factory. Black and solemn it stood in the open space that was now overgrown with tall weeds and scrubby underbrush. For a moment I was disappointed. Then second thought made me realize my stupidity. I should have known that even if what I half suspected was true, no trace of light would be allowed to seep through those heavily boarded windows and tightly bolted doors. Whether my suspicions were true or false, the place would look exactly as it looked now, black, empty, haunted perhaps by a few minor ghosts of the stockholders who once had expected to grow rich as the result of its activities. The others in the car were still sunk in their own thoughts, oblivious to the deserted plant. So when I spoke, I could feel them all start in surprise. Roll it quietly to your right, I said. Then, how close do you think we can get to the plant? Dick, who had through lifelong practice learned to crush any sign of surprise, answered by turning the car sharply to the right. The headlight beams cut in a wide sweep across the rank vegetation. Slightly to my left, the lights brought into clear view exactly what I had hoped to see. The weeds had been swept down by the passage of a heavy car. When our car turned, the lights revealed a trifle farther and slightly overlapping the bent weeds, another lane in which the weeds were bent in the opposite direction. A car had entered and left, recently. I must have sighed audibly. Certainly the others all waited for me in almost tangible expectancy. I explained with telegraphic brevity. That fast car. Well, brothers and sisters, take a look at its tracks in the weeds. They looked, and again I could feel their unspoken reaction. Do big cars turn in to pay visits to empty deserted plants? The question needed no answer. Dick began inching his car around the bent grass and weeds, as if he were unwilling to disturb the possible clue. He held the nose of the car toward the building, until we were well within the shadow. Then he flicked off his lights. "'Here's a flash,' said Dick, who always seemed clairvoyant about a person's needs. I took it gratefully. "'Fresh batteries, too,' he added unnecessarily. "'If Dick had a gadget, that gadget was always oiled and ready for work. You could bet on it.' We piled out of the car, using all exits, and found ourselves knee-high in lush, dank weeds. I heard Dick working at the front seat. It wasn't at all surprised to see him emerge with his hands full of tools, a magnificently hefty monkey wrench, 
a small crowbar, a chisel, a screwdriver, and a hammer. What, no vacuum cleaner? asked Julia May ironically. This, darling, I countered, is no woman's job. Julia May looked pert and determined even in the heavy shadow. Well, just try to keep this woman away, she declared. I never take her dares. I know better. We needed no talk or heavy conference to know what we were looking for first. It would have been sheer stupidity to try all the possible entrances when the bent weeds were bound to lead us to the one entrance normally employed by the person or persons that use the plant. Only, and that was an eventuality, I prefer not to regard too intently. If there was a guard or a caretaker on the place, he would be near the used entrance, no doubt of that, and he would probably be armed. That was a risk I regarded quickly, and shoved aside as quickly. No use peopling the plant with human beings until they forced themselves on our attention. So through the weeds we walked, all of us instinctively heading for the clearly marked path, down which other intruders had evidently moved not too long ago. We set our feet lightly in the line of the brushed weeds, walking almost in Indian fashion to prevent too large a trail in our wake. Then using our flashlights only very occasionally, we came smack up against the wall, and a window heavily boarded with dusty, cobwebbed wood, and with what seemed to be ancient, rusted nails. Harry expertly disdained the obvious nails. He ran his hand along the underside of the wood, and then stopped suddenly, and said with a pleased air, Hinges! And a nice stage set! The whole mass of planks is really a hinged door. He slipped the hand along the inner side. In a second I heard the click of a light catch. Not even locked, he whispered, for we had instinctively lowered our voices. Makes sense, though, he continued. Who but a quartet of loons would go trailing around in a ghost village in search of fifth columnists? With a noise that seemed to pierce the night like a cry of a screech owl, the fake planking swung back, and we touched with the warm light of our flashlight a window carefully stripped of even the remains of broken glass. I turned the light into the interior, a dusty basement piled with ancient barrels, and the tall, slim wooden cases used to ship glass. The drop from the window ledge was a matter of only three feet, so we made it easily, leaving Harry to help Julia May down. The floor was covered with a soft, whitish dust. Not a footprint was visible. I was completely puzzled, until Dick, poking around in the empty barrels, looked up with a short laugh. He thrust his hand into a barrel, and then pulled it out, shifting through his fingers a soft dust powder. Let's remember to scatter some of it when we leave, he said. Wouldn't do to spoil this beautiful stage set after somebody's worked it up so perfectly. We crossed the room, leaving our footprints clearly behind us, opened the door in the far hall, and threw our light down the long, narrow corridor from which we guessed opened the storerooms that had once probably been filled with glass products. Here the stage setting ended. There were footprints up and down that corridor, some clean and fresh, some smudged and clouded by the normal settling of dust. Huddling close together, as mortals do when they scent danger and want the consolation of near-human presence, we tiptoed down the corridor. We knew that now we were leaving a clear trail behind us, a trail that no amount of fixing on our part would obliterate. For if we spread the powder here in the corridor, we would be covering the other footprints, too. If we made no effort to conceal our tracks, we would be leaving behind a record as plain as a signature in a guest book. Let me anticipate for a moment and say that we later decided on the first course and obliterated all the footprints, our own and the others. 
we argue that perhaps through some mental lapse he or they would not notice this we had no hope of his failing to notice the clear footprints of four strangers who it might be easy enough to track down every sense organ in our bodies were strained as we negotiated that long passage there was about the place the feel of its having been used recently perhaps we imagined this because of the footprints perhaps because of the air which had lately known the presence of other human beings we approached every door with a scrutinizing swing of our flash we receded from every doorway with an unexpressed fear that it would silently send forth someone with a gun someone who would shoot first and investigate later we grinned in sheepish relief when we opened the door at the end of the corridor and saw ahead of us a staircase leading to an upper floor behind us the corridor door swung to on its hinges and we stood in darkness i reached out and touched something familiar a switch instinctively i swung it into contact expecting a flood of light instead a ghastly scream split the darkness like the cry of a ghost fresh from his tomb the scream died into a harsh roar and rumble i felt julia may throw herself against me stifling a cry of terror in my coat and dick and harry drew close to me standing together we forgot all about the flashlight we were just a little knot of men facing three ways around the girl to whom we suddenly feared we had brought some homicidal terror then harry laughed that broke the spell and i lifted a relieved hand to dash the sweat from my forehead the terrifying sound had settled into a familiar hum a generator said harry voicing what we all now knew but for a moment exhausted as we were by our recent experience none of us moved we were ashamed of our fear too and i felt that i shouldn't have taken my protective arm from around julia may even though she was now laughing quietly and a little hysterically the hum of the generator guided us to the second floor here too the windows were tightly boarded and the doors of what had once probably been executive offices were covered with planking the floor had recently been swept no footprints to help us so we had to follow the hum of the motor till it led us to a door nailed apparently more securely than were the others but we had learned the trick we felt carefully along the edges located the hidden catch threw open the door of planks and flashed our light into the room again the momentary freezing of our spines as we faced this time an apparently chilling reality a ghost only it was a cloth draped over something tall and wide i jumped across the room and tore away the covering there cheerfully purring like some robot cat was a generator next to it ready for action earphones lying on the ledge operating instruments all in place was the magnificent radio set complete to the last detail no expert knowledge was needed to grasp the fact that the wave that radio sent out was that short short wave which i had once received on my set and which i had overheard so recently from charlie's room clever piece of work no doubt of it a small but powerful gasoline engine completed the equipment no line to the public electrical supply to give away the existence of this set compact and perfect it was a center from which messages could be sent out and received within i hesitated to guess how many miles carefully we redraped the white cloth just as it had been silently we descended the stairs remarkably squeakless considering their supposed lack of use over a period of years carefully we retraced our way down the corridor returning to cover all the footsteps with the dust powder when we had boosted dick and julia may up through the window we spread the dust thick on the main storeroom floor 
but one final hunch made me examine barrel after barrel in that room. I thrust my flashlight into each one. Empty, empty, filled with broken glass. Empty, sawdust, empty. Then... I was looking down into a barrel filled with carefully shaped pieces of steel tubing, all alike. What had these to do with a glass factory, and how did they happen to be so bright and clean and new? I beckoned to Harry, and we picked up one of the pieces. One end, the straighter section, was carefully threaded and showed faint signs of recent use. The other was spread into a slightly wider opening, like the end of an automobile exhaust pipe that you sometimes see thrust out from the back of a car. An automobile exhaust pipe. An exhaust pipe. Harry's mind seemed to be going through the same mental processes as mine. The look we exchanged was eloquent of understanding. With my handkerchief I carefully rubbed all traces of fingerprints from the tubing, put it quietly back into the barrel, and followed Dick and Julia May into the open air. The plank swung back into place. A slight rain was falling, bless it, and we hoped that it would develop into something heavy enough to destroy the trail we had left through the weeds. If not... But why bother with possibilities or probabilities now? As Dick's car nosed its way out onto the road, we planned the rest of the night's business. That was why half an hour later we left our car a block from Julia May's house and walked quietly up to the porch. While I talked with notable loudness to her on the veranda, Dick and Harry cut back to Mitzi's garage. They weren't gone long. At least it didn't seem long. Time has a way of snapping together like an elastic band when I have Julia May all to myself. They came up on the porch, and Dick laid a piece of torn milkweed in my outstretched hand. Off the bumper of Mitzi's car, he said in a whisper. Or shall we say Elwell's? Harry suggested. Suddenly the door opened, the porch was flooded with light, and Mitzi in a dressing gown stood framed in the doorway. Julia May, she said, and her voice was tense as a harp-string, and ragged as a musical saw. Isn't it enough that you dislike me? Must you spy on me, too? Yes, I was out with Mr. Elwell this evening. What right have you to ask me, or watch me, or look down your nose in insolence and dislike? We picnicked together. Was that a crime? We walked to the woods. Was that a horrible outrage? Here her voice suddenly went shrill. Why can't I be left alone? Why can't my life, what's left of it, be my own? She snapped off the light and disappeared like a figure in the magician's mirror. That was all for the night. But late the next afternoon, as I sat in my laboratory trying to keep my mind on an experiment that did not involve hidden radio sets and dark corridors, Harry sauntered in. You won't like this, he began, but I had to do it. I told Green and Shorty about the radio in the glass plant. In fact, they rented a car and went there. He looked at me quizzically. You're sure that's where we were last night? "'You're not going coy on me, are you?' I asked. "'Well,' he said, "'the planks, the corridor, the room, the empty barrels, all as before, "'but no set, no murder, no nothing.' "'I sat back literally on my heels, "'as if from a hard sock in the jaw. "'But Harry held up his hand warningly. "'That's bad,' he agreed, "'but this, my lad, is worse.' "'He held out in his palm.' A piece of milkweed that was torn as the other piece had been, and it looked so innocent there against his slightly pink skin. I got that off the bumper of an automobile, too, he said. Mitzi's? I asked mechanically. He shook his head. 
This time his words did land on my mental chin, and effected a knockout punch. Morin's, he answered. End of chapter 5